0: Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. It's good to see you, as always. Yes. So today we have a fabulous guest, and September is Suicide Prevention Month, so it's a perfect combination of talking about everything, considering that the second leading cause of death between the ages of 10 to 14 is suicide, which is just a shocking fact, but we have uh, today a good discussion that that is just... Uh, around all this. So our our guest is the highly esteemed Dr. Mark Reinecke, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and past Chief of the Division of Psychology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. He also served for 14 years as the Director of the Center for Cognitive Therapy in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. His research and clinical interests center on understanding and treating depression, suicide, and anxiety among children and adolescents. I met Dr. Reinecke years ago, as we serve we still currently on a foundation advisory committee in Chicago, and have heard him speak several times, and always learn something new. So I'm excited that he's here today. This man is top of the charts in his field, and we're so lucky to have him here. Welcome, Dr. Mark Welcome. Heineke.
1: Thank you for having me. Is it's it fine to call you Mark, or should can, we, should we certainly. still
0: go with Dr. Reinecke? You can go
1: with Mark. Either one.
0: Nice to have you. Welcome. Thank you for giving us your time. Oh, it's yes. A
2: pleasure. So, Before we start, I always like to know the background. How did you get involved in this profession, in this field?
1: Well, this goes back a long ways, and I came through it circuitously, and so I, when I was an undergraduate, I studied uh, biology and neurobiology and um, psychology, and I was planning on going to medical school to become a, to go into pediatrics, and I sat down with my applications, what it would be junior year, I guess, mm-hmm. senior year, early senior year, it's just not working for me, I just wasn't feeling it, so I simply asked myself, Um what do you really get excited about? And it was this class I had. It was John Flavel, a developmental psychologist. He was the original person to translate Piaget from French into English. Hmm. I must say, not a terribly good lecturer, but I loved the material, and I greatly, I was blessed to have the chance to have him as a professor and work in his lab. And I thought, I'm going to be like him. (laughs) And so I pivoted and went into clinical child psychology. Now, flash forward a couple of years, I'm now a second year graduate student, I was at Purdue University, studying babies, infant development. And um, my major advisor, Jerry Gruen, calls me into his office and he goes, Mark, you know, can you do something for me? And I go, what's that? He goes, can you do something clinical? I said, I'd make and he goes, you are in a clinical psychology program, don't you think you should do something clinical? Write a paper, any topic that you like for me on something clinical. And so I wrote a paper And it was a terrible paper. But it turns out, looking back on it 35 years later, 40 years later, it was prescient. It was on um, neurochemical substrates and biomarkers for depression in children. And I was just, you can see my my interests in biology and neurobiology and child development were coming together. But I wrote this paper for him and it was a terrible paper, but it sparked my interest in mood disorders and depression in children. And that became my career. Wow. So it's, how would you put it? It just sort of, you never know where life will take you, but that's where it brought me. Very interesting.
2: How do you describe mood disorders for caretakers, parents, and how do we as parents or caretakers recognize it in children that are are very young?
1: Sure. Well, you know, I think in terms of, uh, primarily in terms of depressed mood, feeling sad, down, blue. And when I talk with a child about it, or if I'm talking with a parent about it, I'll use just those words, sad, down, depressed, blue, just loss of interest, nothing's pleasant or fun. Because each youngster, each person can define it in their own way. So I want to give them latitude to describe it. But what you're looking for is pervasive, long-standing, not just a few minutes, everybody gets sad sometimes, but pervasive and engulfing feelings of depression and sadness during childhood. And what... I used to work with, or I still work with, um, uh, John Curry, a colleague back at Duke, and we did a paper together. And in it, we said, you know, something: depression is not a natural part of childhood, and it's yeah. really yeah. not. Yeah,
2: yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. So I think I think the struggle that a lot of parents have when their ch- children are young is is twofold. One of them is, yeah. like, my son is diagnosed with bipolar one mm-hmm. and ADHD. But originally was diagnosed with ADHD and ODD and and depression. And um, it wasn't clearly defined because I feel like a lot of the illnesses mimic each other or mirror each other.
1: Well, they blend into one another. Mm -hmm. And that brings up a larger issue, which is how do we categorize? How do we carve up the the areas of one diagnosis of another? And there's lots of conceptual ways of thinking about this. But one of the things I think we should do is recognize that these categories tend to be fairly fluid in childhood. And that's where you'll see, how would you put it, the underlying problem is emotion regulation. And what I would say, what I tell my students, is that infants are not born with the innate ability to regulate their moods when they become distressed. They'll turn to their parents, how would you put it, affect regulation is biological, but it's sent ahead. It's sent to the parents. And so you'll see parents engaging in all manner of behaviors to soothe their child and to calm them. The affect regulation resides with the parents. Over the course of, we hope, over a course of childhood and adolescence up into adulthood, we want to see them developing those abilities to calm themselves down, to stay what I call a sense of equanimity when their challenges arise. But that takes time. It takes practice. It has to be learned. And so... When these systems break down, then you see, how would you put it, dysregulated behavior. When a youngster gets frustrated, they become angry. When they get a bit sad and they have a loss or disappointment, they get really depressed. That When they get um, a bit anxious or nervous, it will be true fear will emerge. And so what we have to think about is how do they develop and how does the parent or the caregivers help them to develop these abilities, for lack of a better term, to stay chill, Mm -hmm. Because there's always going to be stresses and pressures in life.
0: What's what's the youngest child you've seen ever?
1: A baby, an infant, maybe six months old.
0: That just was, uh, the parents, what would have flagged them to bring in a baby six months old?
1: Well, it was an interesting case because it came in through the parent. And the parent felt that their child was really delayed and um, he was having trouble walking and was having trouble... um, with facial expressions and just not really relating to people. And she thought um, that there was something seriously amiss in terms of the neurocognitive development of her infant. And I met with her, and what I noted, it was an interesting thing. It was, in some regards, over-parenting. She was so concerned with the infant. Think about babies we have known. You know, they're on the floor, and they cry, and you sort of, you'll see them trying to crawl. Mm -hmm. If this infant expressed any negative affect, just a wince, she would be right up there putting a bottle. Yeah, and they they'd feel it. They'd know. put the bottle into yeah. his mouth or give him the toy, whatever. So he had no impetus, no motivation to learn to crawl or to gesture or any of these things. Interesting. But what it meant is the parent had to tolerate, let your child experience some distress. Let them oh. feel pressured to crawl across the floor. Now it became interesting because, um, so the child we started trying this, and it was a bit difficult for, for mom. But uh, the child, you know, six months old or so, looks at me. I pick him up, looking to see what his social lean is. And um, the child looks at me and smiles, and which is what you know, social yeah. smiling is what an infant does. And the mom goes, you know, he loves you more than me. Oh. And my, wow. you know, my my ears perked up. Okay, yeah. she is really misinterpreting a normative part of development. So part of the treatment then was working with her both to encourage her child to become more independent, but also to allow her child to become more sociable with other people.
0: So did it turn out that that child did have issues or not? I mean, I mean everybody has issues. Everybody has <laughs> issues. <Yeah. laughs> but, I mean, did it turn it out not, that, that n- there was something that was really there? there?
1: There were things that were there, but they weren't the severe neurodevelopmental problems that mom was concerned about.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it says a lot it's uh so so when you look at it you know over the years now the ages have gone younger and younger to start mm-hmm. identifying and getting help and it seems like the numbers are huge the amount of right. kids that have issues and compared to 10, 20, 30 years ago. My right. own, my mother is a retired, it's 91. Today's my parents' 68th wedding anniversary.
3: Oh, happy anniversary! Um, but, the, for
0: them. but my mother was a reading specialist, uh-huh. at, uh, you know, for the LD kids, etc. And she says, now, boy, I can't believe how many kids are diagnosed with, I mean, the numbers are enormous compared right. to then. So what do you attribute that to? Do you think that There is just early diagnosis or are there more, is there more environmental uh, surroundings that are causing more uh, mental health issues in kids younger and younger?
1: The answer is yes.
0: Yes, there is. For both?
1: It's both. It's yes and yes. We're getting more sensitive and better at um, diagnosing and picking up and ascertaining when something's amiss. And parents are more aware of it now, which is Good. You know, some things are just not a normal part of childhood. We should, you know, if we see something, we should say something. We should do something about it. On the other hand, if we look at, for example, levels of depression in American society or Western society, although the research is primarily here in North America, rates of de- depression in, in uh, the United States have increased generation by generation every 10 years since the turn of the last century, 1910, 1920, 1930, all the way up to the present. And so there is, how would you put it, something in the water, something in our culture, something in the ways that we are living our life that are leading us to become more stressed, more depressed. It's a, it's, it's a more challenging time. It's a more challenging yeah. time for our kids, for our teenagers, the things that they have to accomplish in order to have a successful career as an independent adult, harder than when, when we were growing
0: yeah, up. Yeah, it's a whole different game, and it was, for us, you know, compared to our parents' time, it increases, like you're saying. Interesting. But
1: there are, uh, there's a, a fellow uh, professor, Alardi, at University of Kansas who writes about this. And he notes that from an evolutionary perspective, we didn't evolve for the life that we lead. And if you just look at us here sitting around the table, we didn't evolve to be sitting under fluorescent lights with headphones on and computers open, mm-hmm. which is how so many of us lead our lives now. Yeah, We evolved to be active out in the sunshine, chasing down things. You know, that's what we did. And how would you put it? Our culture and our life has put us under stresses that we did not evolve to cope with. So yeah. that one is that there is an increase in levels of depression and anxiety. At the same time, I think we'll take ADHD as an example. We are at the same time both underdiagnosing it and overdiagnosing it. That's and, an interesting statement. And mm-hmm. and I so too with depression. I mean, depression not so much overdiagnosing it, but there's a lot of youngsters who are depressed who aren't getting care. And that's a shame, too, because you know, every time I hear about a teen who's committed suicide, I just, I'm just i just shaken by it because I look at that and I think, you know, we could have fixed this. We could have done something for them, and I wish that had been available.
2: I think a lot of parents get confused, um, which I've gotten a lot of questions over the years. When your children are growing, especially from 10 on, you know their horm- hormones are changing. Yep. And they just attribute it to being a teenager. And so how do you differentiate? What are some things that they can look for to say, wait a minute, maybe this is not just teenage behavior. Maybe there's something more behind it.
1: Well, there's two things to think about there then. One is the teenage years and really that transition in junior high, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, a lot of things happen there. And it's not simply hormones. A lot of times we'll attribute it to hormones. But there's a shift from a focus on the family. Elementary school, where the, how would you put it, the teacher is pretty much like a mom or a dad. You've yeah. got one yeah. female teacher. Nurturing. And, and mm-hmm. Nurturing. It's to shifting between classes and moving from teacher to teacher. Your social network is going to be disrupted as you move to a new school. And, you, and there's this churning social world of early adolescence. And they're developing, they're, sense of self is more and more defined by their peer group as opposed to their parents. And in fact, you know, one of the phrases I like is, you know, the developmental trajectory is ever and always towards more autonomy from Mm. the first days of infancy Mm -hmm. all the way up through adolescence is the child is developing skills that will take them away from you. And we can talk about that if you Mm -hmm. like. but, But as they become autonomous in their sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, let's be honest, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders don't have the best social skills. It is a tumultuous time, and um, they're learning their game and how to be to fit with their peer group. And being part of a peer group is just so important, having good friends you can turn to. And so how would you put it? At the While there's increasing stress and the teens are developing the skills to manage these feelings and emotions, at the same time there's less support available from parents. So oh, yeah. on the one hand, we want to, parents should recognize this is the game. And it's this, this stress and storm and drawing, the old term for it, is a normative part of adolescence. That's the hard part is let's give them some space. Yeah. At the same time, we need to recognize that the large, large majority of teenagers get through it all right you know, we did, they will too. Yeah,
0: maybe not the uh, happiest moments in no, their life,
1: no. but, yeah, but that's
2: they, a good, they
0: learn a lot and good get
1: Good point to, to so bring what, up. So what we're really doing then is looking for the youngsters who are struggling, who are, how'd you put it there? I'm mixing my metaphors. They're falling beneath the waves. Mm-hmm. So they're really struggling socially. They have no friends. They're struggling academically. Perhaps they have an undiagnosed learning disability. A lot of times we'll pick those up around sixth, seventh grade. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that if you like, but they show up. Or they start to feel depressed if they have thoughts of death, suicide. Again, not every kid once in a while has that sort of existential thought, God, what if I wasn't here?
3: Yeah,
1: That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. If they have a, I'm thinking about death and killing myself, by all means, that's not a normative part of being a teen. We should pay attention to it.
3: Yeah.
0: God, and I look at social media as just such a uh, poisonous, you know, really lethal weapon for those kids that just struggle. It's, you know, that was not here when we were kids. And the pressure of just that social media is just unbelievable to these. I've never been on Facebook, but, you know, you just see what kids see, and it's terrible. It's 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 such an added pressure.
1: It's interesting, too, because on the one hand, there's the the pros of social media and of, of, of having Internet access. I remember seeing our daughter. She's now in graduate school. And I went into, uh, she, I, she's supposed to be working on her, I don't know what it was, algebra, pre-calc, something like that. She's on her on her Apple. She's got her computer opened up. And there on the screen are her three other, there's her and her three of her girlfriends, her friends from school. And they're just chatting away. You go, ta, 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 ta. <laughs> and I was like, crazy. you need to be getting to work. What are you doing? You're supposed to be studying calculus or whatever. And she goes, Dad, we are. And I realized on her screen was just like the the four of us you know, sitting mm-hmm. there doing homework assignment together in somebody's bedroom. Only they're doing it on a computer. So com- this, these systems give us access to friends in real time. Yeah, that's
0: nice too. All yeah. over. Especially, oh. especially with the shutdown, you know, when oh. the kids were yeah. home. Um, I'm sure that was like a saving grace in that way.
2: Yeah, a little lifeline for them yeah. to get the social support that they needed. Yeah.
1: So there's this, on the one hand, this positive side to all of this, but it comes with a negative, this un unexpected negative, which is this the social comparisons and the pressure the snarkiness of it. Um it can get it can get brutal.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean it was ugly twenty years ago. Now it's just, you know, really in their face and any time and you know, just well it's
2: the pressure to live up to something yeah. that yep. that is not necessarily real. Yeah.
1: And the, and a lot of times the snarky comments and the really mean comments are anonymous. You don't know where yeah. the fire's coming from. Yeah. Know.
2: Well, I used to talk about bullying, you know, when we were growing yeah. up. Um, if, if children were being bullied, it would be at the school. And then you would go home and you get a reprieve right. from it. Right. But now with social media, it's never ending Quite right. because they're posting on your every page yeah. that you have. And now they're getting their 10 or 20 friends to do the same thing. So now you're really surrounded and magnified. Right. Yeah. Um, so let me
0: ask you something. First of all. People will
2: have to look at our
0: website to see some more information about Dr. Reinecke because he's authored, I think, eleven books. Am I right about that? Yeah, I
1: lose count. A, a lot of books. <laughs> this
0: guy, this guy is wow. is unbelievable. But one thing that always is so interesting to me is how you focus on treatment wise on cognitive therapy. Uh-huh. Can we talk about that? Sure. And especially uh, maybe define it for the sake of our listening audience. But um, cognitive therapy with kids is mm-hmm. something I just. Um, I think about you with that, because it's not the often it's not it's not the usual.
1: Yeah. Well, cognitive therapy developed since about nineteen seventy. And it was in response to some real concerns with what had been at the time the traditional therapies, which was psychodynamic and non directive therapy, because they weren't helpful. They weren't getting an effect size. Going to a therapist back in the nineteen fifties was no more effective than being on a wait list. And people really took that to heart. And so they there was a lot of change in the field then. And so what cognition, cognitive therapy focused on was the ways people think. As uh, Tim Beck, Aaron Beck, he's one of the founders of the the field said, there's more to the surface than meets the eye. Um, You know, in psychodynamic psychotherapy, psychoanalytic, what you say, what you think is all but immaterial because it's repressed and defended against your unconscious motivations. Here we take what you say literally, and the phrase I like comes from Wittgenstein, the philosopher. He said, "The meaning of my words are the meaning of my world."
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: so we look at what, how are you framing and making sense of your experience? What could be a posi- It could any experience could be seen in a number of ways, in an infinite number of ways, as either positive or negative or neutral. And so we look at the words and the ways in which individuals um, think about their experience. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I was working with a gentleman. And his, fortunate or unfortunate, his wife was leaving and they were going to get divorced. And he said, God, you know something, this has, been, this has been going on for years and years. And he goes, this is devastating. And my ear perked up. And I said, what do you mean by devastating? Let's define that term for me. Let's, what's devastation? And I could ask you, you know, what, if you were to define devastation, mm-hmm. what would you say? Give me an example of devastation.
0: Um, hopeless. I no, mean no, no, no.
1: That... An event that's, this is devastating.
2: Oh, a Death.
1: Like, worse than let's get it, make it big. What's devastation? Like, the, the, the example he came up with was Hiroshima. Oh, we he's could say, we advanced. could say, yeah. Yeah, I was going
2: to say, like a mass, yeah. mass yeah, uh, disaster, Katrina. like hurricane yeah. or 9 11. 9
1: 11 is devastating. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, now, and his example was Hiroshima. And I said, okay, is, is that what this is like for you? Is it like somebody dropped a nuclear bomb on your block? And he goes, well, No, it's not that bad. I said, okay. Let's keep it in perspective. Now, let me ask you another question. How long has this been going on? He goes, seven years. I said, you know, it sounds to me it's not that you you, you said before that, you know, I can't take this anymore. Seven years, it sounds to me like you've been taking it too much. He goes, yeah. I put (laughs) up with all, you know, I never really took action to resolve it. I said, well, therein lies the problem. These it's like the frog in the in the boiling water, you know, the, the temperature heats and heats and heats until it's it's just too much. I think maybe we need to think about how you can solve these problems and resolve them. He goes, God, I never thought of it that way. He had viewed himself as sort of a passive victim of his environment. No, no, it's all in how you look at it. So he came away feeling more hopeful. You know, that's mm-hmm. not it's not a nuclear bomb on my block. And there's things steps I should take to try to rectify this. Good, I'll see you next week. Um,
0: yeah, like in in a few sentences, you would make him feel better with that, but it is a matter of
1: thinking, it's how he was framing the problem. How he those two words caught my ear,
2: yeah, it's interesting. Well, then it's so simplified in that context, I think that that resonates with people, yeah, instead of um. You know how do you feel? How do you really feel? All that type of therapy. Well, that,
1: but you know how you feel. The Piaget said he actually, excuse me for going off on a no, theoretical ahead. rant here. <laughs> that's what he we only, have to hear. He yeah. only gave one talk where he talked about emotion, and I want to say it was in the Sorbonne at the Sorbonne in 1954. And he had a phrase which I liked a lot. He said, um, "Emotion and cognition are two sides of a coin." One, one provides the structure, and the, un, the other provides what he called the energetique, the, the motivation. So I look at them, how are you feeling? Well, I feel horrible. I feel so depressed. And what's your thoughts about that? Oh, you know, it'll never get better. I'm, nobody loves me. Really, And when you have that thought, nobody loves me, what's the feeling you get? Desperation. Oh, tell me about the desperation. So it's not that affect is less important. It's just that it's the mirror image or it's the flip side of the coin of cognition. Right. And if you think about it, the things that we remember are the things. Do I remember what I had for lunch three weeks ago on Tuesday? No. But do I remember what happened at the Bears game yesterday? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the things that we remember are the things that have emotion attached to them. So emotion and energy or emotion and cognition are an integrated adaptive system is the way I look at it. So it's not one or the other. It's I look at both.
0: Yeah, interesting. So let's get back to therapy, cognitive therapy. So um, something like cognitive therapy in adults, your description just now of how this man was thinking and Mm -hmm. and all of these things were adults. So with children, is this a newer approach over the years to look at cognitive therapy? How new? Like how many years ago did it start to...
1: Well, you know, I started, I had the, the the blessing, I would say, the good luck and the blessing to work for Aaron Beck. I was his postdoc, and he specialized in depression with and suicide in adults. And about every 10 years or so, he would play around in child, and he would invite a child person to work in his, in his lab. And so back in the mid-'80s, I was his child guy.
0: I like and, that child person.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and um, – how would you do it? You're taking these models that are developed for work with adults and putting them into a developmental framework. That's what we're doing. We are taking models that, how would you put it, thinking and the ways we think about things count. The attributions that we make. What's the cause of these bad things that are happening to me? Those count. Our expectations and hopes for the future and planning count. Our problem solving skills count. Our ability to identify a problem and break it apart and develop solutions, counts. All of these areas of cognition, how we evaluate ourselves and our, our standards for ourselves, um, what we think we should, ought to, or must be. And then when we don't meet our own standards, boy, we feel it. We're not measuring up. Those count. I had a teenager once who said, you can't make this stuff up. This is 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And he is um, an undergraduate at Yale, and he's studying humanities English. And he's a sophomore. I said, well, how do you feel like you're doing it? Not enough, not enough. I said, well, what do you feel like you should be doing? He goes, I need to get the Nobel Prize in literature. And I was like, whoa. Wow. You know, my eyes opened up. That is a... It's a high bar. Stratis- <laughs> strat- that is a beyond <laughs> a high bar. That's an unreasonable bar. Now, what, you know, we can look at the relationship of mindfulness to CBT. I think they're closely linked. You know what the Dalai Lama says? The source of all human suffering is failed expectations. Mm-hmm. If a ex- statement. It's yeah. a lovely statement. But if your expectation is I should be getting the Nobel Prize, you're forever going to be disappointed with yourself and feel down and depressed.
0: Sp- Unless you sp- get it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help. Although this. you know, you know something. Let's yeah. hold back on that thought too. You know, um, because you know what they say. There's a cheeky joke about getting, um, what is it that they get when you're an undergraduate? The um, the prize from England. Um,
2: oh, I got nothing.
1: No, you do uh, <laughs> the um, Rhodes scholarship. Oh, oh. The, 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 the the most horrible thing you can do is have your highest achievement when you're a teenager. Yeah, you know, everything is downhill from sliding from there.
3: Thanks. Um,
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true, that statement. Um, But, but something like, you know, back to the therapy. So in, in changing the thinking, like we, I'm always fascinated with CBT, cognitive behavior therapy. We've defined it on, we've talked about it once in a while on this podcast, but just give a definition of that before we get into it.
1: Well, it's, it's, differs from dynamic therapies and traditional therapies in several ways. Theoretically, I mean, there is no unconscious. I mean, we do have an unconscious, but we don't think about um, unconscious motivation. There's no drives, there's no libido, there's no defenses against the expression of it. There are thoughts, and there are thoughts that we don't like to think because they're upsetting, but they are potentially available to us. There's cognition, the ways in which we think about our experience, about ourself, our world, our future, our relationships. And we all have those thoughts sort of floating through our minds all the time. And they have emotions attached to them. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there are behaviors. There's behavioral skills, social skills, just like there are athletic skills or learning how to do math or conjugate a Spanish verb. There are things that we acquire from adults in our world that will help us to adapt and do well. So we think about both cognition, how we think about things, and then how we use that information to, um, in our behaviors. And so that's why they call it cognitive behavioral. Now, the, it, with children, it's worth noting, sometimes children have a difficulty articulating how they're feeling. You know, if you ask them, how are you feeling, what do they say? Bad. Yeah, or you fine. Fine. Okay. That's the modal okay. answer, fine. fine.
0: and you um, look at
1: their face. and Well, there's a way around that. Say, so Fine, really, everything's good, perfect mean now I've really got you really how is it that you're leading a perfect life is it well it's not perfect okay fair enough what's not, what could be better well you know my sister she you know all right let's talk there you go yeah. um, so how would you put it that's just saying everything's fine is just a deflection and we can get around that um, but let's see where were we oh the notion of cognition and emotion we want to, What I would tell my grad students is these thoughts don't blow in from outer space. They are learned, they're acquired in a social context. And unfortunately, just as it happens, the the ways in which we behave influence our social environment. The way I put it is we poison our social well, Mm -hmm. um, or we are architects of our own distress. And so, for example, if we had a depressed teenager and he's sort of feeling really down because, for whatever reason girlfriend broke up or I didn't get into Dartmouth or whatever it is. He's down about something. And he's like, oh, I just feel so terrible. What's he do? He goes in his room, he listens to music, he flips open his computer, looks at dark stuff on the internet. And you get you can get yourself really whipped into a depressive yeah. frenzy by doing that, by isolating. And that isolating is normal. That's what happens when people are depressed. If you want, we can talk about that. <laughs> but what happens then? So the friends are getting together and they go, hey, you know something? Do we want to Do we want to call up Mark and ha- get some pizzas and watch the Bears game this weekend? Nah, nah, he's not going to be any fun. Mm-hmm. They're in fact correct. So Mark is then at home with his computer and, oh, they all got together. They didn't even invite me. Mm-hmm. He's behaved in a way. He sent out signals to the world that I'm unavailable and uninteresting. And the world picked up on it. Yeah. And that potentiates his depression going forward. and That's what I mean when I say we've poisoned our social well. Now, it can circle down like that, but it can also circle up. And I'll give you an example of that, which is if you behave in a positive way towards others, towards your fellow man, they will respond accordingly. So I, I found this paper. This is about five years ago. And um, it was done down at Purdue, and they have a quadrangle there. And they had... The confederate of the investigator walked down the across the quadrangle at eight in the morning, going to class, and smile at people, and they noted, you know, they asked the people as they came towards the across the lawn, "How do you feel this morning?" Those who the, the confederate just behaved in a neutral manner too. Well, I feel fine, but it's eight a.m. and it's cold out. You know, it's a uh, your mood rating, oh, three out of ten. The ones where, without even engaging the person, the person had smiled at them. How are you feeling this morning? "Eh, Pretty good. It's a nice morning. A little chilly, but nice. What's your mood rating? Seven. They had not even been aware that the person had engaged them, sort of broken that social sphere Mm -hmm. and engaged them by smiling at them. So I was like, I read this paper. I believe it was in Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And I'm like, I'm going to try it. So I started going in when I'd come into the office. This is at Northwestern. And they had, you know, secretaries there sitting out in the front of the office. And usually they just, eh, whatever. As you come in the door, it's, it's 8.30 in the morning. It's, it's a morning, you know. Mm-hmm. I started smiling at them, just a little tip of the hat, a little wave at them. Nothing more than that, just that. Within about a week, they started smiling at me. Oh, hi, Dr. <laughs> yeah. And then after about a week. One of them said, Can I get the door for you? Oh. And I remember going, When's the last time somebody said they wanted to open a door for a professor? Yeah. It never yeah. happens. But what it was is if you can you can damage your social value mm-hmm. by behaving in a negative way or be acting in a depressed way, or you can enhance it by showing a positive affect and an interest in your fellow man. Now you see where this goes. This is the behavioral part of cognitive behavioral therapy. So let's You know, Johnny, you've had a rough week. Why don't we think about ways in which you can be, you know, a little bit more engaging as a friend. Mm-hmm. Let's see if this does some good. Oh, they're not going to like me. Well, let's put that to the test. and Let's see. What do you say we check this out, okay? Right. And so we'll run an experiment to see, you know, how many, how many guys will invite you to watch a football game. You know, something okay. like. We'll come up with some exper- Now, I will say this is the clinician side of it. As a CBT therapist... When you run an experiment like that, a behavioral test, you want to be sure that you've got a hundred percent chance of success. So you make it you make it simple. Talk
0: about setting the high bar.
1: Yeah. Well, no, but that's just yeah. the plan for it. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll give you a stupid example. This comes from again about twenty five years ago when I do this this mood monitoring where, I, as I mentioned, teens kids are often have a difficult time articulating emotions.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's a teenager, I was working with maybe about fifteen years old. He was kind of depressed. And I said, here's what I want you to do. Every day, uh, I want you to write down on a piece of paper the worst thing that happened to you that day and how you felt. So what's the event? How do you feel? Now, will a teenager do it? Absolutely. Because, really? Yeah, oh, they want you to know how miserable their life is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so every day, what's the worst? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What's the worst thing that happened? And how did that make you feel? So he's writing, writing, writing. I want you to do something else for me. I would like you to write down the best thing that happened during the day. Well, nothing good happened. Well, it just has to be better than zero. You know, I you know, I got some really good tacos at Taco Bell. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. A friend called me Simplistic. up. You know, some, something that was better than zero. Yes. And so he he comes in and he's got this list every day the things that are the worst, and every day the things that are better. And I said, So tell me something. What did you think of this little exercise this week? And What did you learn from it? And he goes, You know, I learned that my life doesn't totally suck.
3: (laughs) And I was like, yes, (laughs) booyah.
1: Um, That is exactly, that's the goal of the experiment is to break that cognitive block, how to perceptual bias that he had that everything in his life was miserable. No, it's not. You got crummy stuff each day, but you got good stuff each day too. Yeah,
2: I love it. Yeah, I've I've often used the term self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know if that's very much so. Uh, okay. It's not necessarily a clinical term, but I used to talk my talk to yeah. my son about that because he was very negative, negative, negative. And I said, You're becoming a self fulfilling prophecy if you are always looking at the world with sunglasses. It's that's, always
1: gonna be It's da- always gonna, da- it's it's gonna a, be dark.
2: Dark. You have right. to take them off. Yeah. And it's baby steps. You know, we don't have to go out and say, Oh, I won the Nobel Peace Prize, but You know, maybe I went out with some friends and had a nice dinner or had a great conversation with my mother or father.
1: And I'm not saying put on the pink glasses, too, and say everything right. Yeah, right. Like a Pollyanna. What do you say we just put on some clear glasses and get a real objective, rational view of the way things are? Maybe there's some things that you can do to, you know, plus things. You know, you you did get a D on trigonometry. Mm -hmm. I was watching the Blackhawks game. You know, maybe – there's some rules here that we can live by that yeah. don't watch Blackhawks on the night before an exam. Mm-hmm. You know, we should trig that. I had a bad trig teacher. I know what you're going through. <laughs> it's, it's a tough class. Let's practice it. You know, let's figure this out. Right. So it's not to be Pollyannish and say, you know, yeah, every day right. in every way I'm better and better and better. No, no, I'm not saying that. Right. Let's just it be seems clear. like
0: I love this conversation because about especially adolescents and, and kids, Because if they start, you know, if there are more of of you in the world to spread this around, if they start this rethinking and this this process of evaluating day to day with them, they will be hopefully happier adults. I mean, so often CBT... Has been talked about in the past, you know, 10 years, 15 years with adults. Let's say I right. know it's much longer than that, but just where people think of it, right? And they, as adults, start to practice. They might go to CBT therapy, right. And um, but now, if you start integrating it into a child's mind, it will be interesting to see how they. It's retraining the thinking. So when they get older, hopefully they won't fall into some of the right. patterns they would have. Do you agree with that?
1: That's the plan.
0: Yeah, it would be.
2: Well, I think it's like any training, yeah. you know, right. being a, being in law enforcement, we train all the time, and it's just for that. You're training yeah, for the early. events that are yeah. are coming right. up. So that, why would it be different? Yeah. And, yeah,
0: but it's great that it's earlier in life. Yes. Right. Earlier in life so that, yes. you know, you don't just jump in when you're 50
1: and miserable. But you're right. It's the same as how would you put it, as in law enforcement, you're training, you're training in a skill, but you're mm-hmm. also training in a way of looking at problems Correct. so that you can flexibly apply it, whatever you're mm-hmm. encountering in life. Yeah.
0: Hopefully happier adults. Yeah. Yeah. It's great.
2: Yeah. Because my, my thought process is if you were going through childhood and you weren't doing any of this therapy, then how do you undo it as an adult? It must take a lot more time because you're for mm-hmm. lack of a better term, sat your wigs. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, and that's, it's the, the challenge of working with children is, the challenge and the, the positive side of it is that, how would you put it, the concrete has not set. Yeah. They're still thinking about things, they're still developing, particularly for teenagers, their identity yeah. and their social group. Um, these things are all fluid. And so we have an opportunity to help them to have When something bad happens to have a more adaptive, more adaptive attributions. You know, they do it in classrooms now when they talk about, what do they call, Carol Dweck calls it, the growth mindset. You know, having a class that's really rough and you get a bad grade, that's not a problem. That just tells you, you know, they're not giving it to you because you can't learn it. They're giving it to you because you don't know it yet. This calculus is hard for everybody. Let's dig in. Yeah, And that growth mindset, I can do it, rather than there are some of us who have natural ability and some of us who don't. No, it's about putting time and effort against a problem. And that growth mindset, if you learn it in elementary school, that's a blessing because then you can carry it through your life. Yeah.
2: Yeah, wow. I'm curious at what point doing CBT therapy, let's say the – adolescent or child is trying to change their thinking but their change their thinking is not changing then at what point do you have to seek maybe alternative method like medication
1: well two things one is if what what i would what i would advise if i had a trainee is let's Mm -hmm. step back from that and say not just is it not changing because we want to see change and i want to see change within about four to six weeks I was going to ask you that. How much if it's time? not clicking, we, this is an active, let's make it happen. I want to help you to feel better fast, fast, fast.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: If it's not clicking, then I want to know why. And I would. the first question I would ask is, are we missing something here? Is there a variable in our formulation that we are overlooking? Is there a stressor in their life that we're missing? Is there a something that we've missed? And invariably there is. And... So the first step is not let's just throw something at it and see mm-hmm. if it works. Give medications, but let's and it may be for example, if we were doing ADHD and the kid came in because they were having difficulty in school, and their behavior is kind of erratic and impulsive, and they're and then they come in and they say and it's just not getting better. We've put them on a psychos, you know, a stimulant med. We're doing the CBT for ADHD and they're not getting better. And then they go, yeah, you know, he was up. He only he was up till four in the morning. He only got three hours of sleep last night. Was he tired today? No. Huh. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, could this youngster be bipolar? Yeah, right. So, and I would yeah. say, let me ask you something: Is there any history in your family? Because the heritability index for bipolar mm-hmm. disorder is a .8. It's largely genetic. Yeah. Is there any history among any f- immediate family members—parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles—of bipolar disorder? And they go, "What's that? You remember manic depression, right?" Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. His grandfather—he passed away before he was born, but he was on medications. What medication was he on? Oh, lithium. Okay. Now I'm—I will now shift my mm-hmm. pivot. I will pivot and ask. Let's do a diagnostic interview. Maybe what we have is this is an amorphous set of, of symptoms, but the way he's presenting as an early onset bipolar is through X, Y, and Z. Right. And then we would shift to another set of. There's a whole set of CBT interventions for bipolar, and we'd want to talk to a physician about medication management. Um, You know, we'd want to... But the the notion is we should be careful and think about our conceptualization, and that will guide us on where to go.
0: Yeah. I have a a question totally kind of off the side of this. Do you have young people that you would... I mean, adolescent children that you would have diagnosed as borderline personality disorder? Um, I don't know how young... We had someone on talking about that at one point. but I know that CBT and DBT dialectic right. uh, behavior therapy is, is the go-to therapy for that diagnosis, Correct. at least that's what they say on, on paper. Do you, have, um, do you have children that come in with that sort of symptom and
1: let's be, let's draw a fine line here. Yes, there are youngsters who come in with those sorts of symptoms. But that's different than saying I would make the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. The diagnosis I look for a broad, and because part of by, by of borderline personality is fluidity and identity. Children and adolescents don't have a stable identity yet. They yeah, don't know what right. they're going to be when they grow up, or their political beliefs, or religious beliefs, and their relationship types, and you know, so things are still in flux. What I would note, actually, we did a book. Oh, Art Freeman and I did a book about. 15 years ago, on the development of personality disorders in children and adolescents. It was a lovely book. God, furious reactions from some. Mm-hmm. Some colleagues said, you know, it's about time somebody did this. Others were, oh my God, how can you say that children have personality disorders? But if you read the title, it wasn't diagnosis and treatment of personality disorders. It was development of personality disorders. The notion is, these conditions like borderline personality, they don't just show up when you're 18. They have a developmental history and a developmental trajectory, just like other conditions. So we were simply asking the question, where do they come from? And can we see them early? And in some cases, we can. In which case, what are we going to do to put the child onto a more positive trajectory, positive path, which is different than saying, you know, I'm diagnosing an 8-year-old with borderline personality, which I'm not. I would say they're showing some early symptoms. I'm concerned, you know, their behavior is erratic. They're very, very sensitive to separation and abandonment. You know, when it's just not there. What are we going to do to help your child control their or regulate their emotions a bit better, mm-hmm. and to um, develop a more stable identity, and to feel more secure in their relationships with others? Now, in fact, there are books written. Uh, They come out of New York, out of how do you pronounce it Montefiore, Mm -hmm. um, on um, I believe it was Miller who wrote it. I could be mistaken on uh, DBT with teenagers, and fabulous. But what they're he's doing the same thing that I'm suggesting here is let's think about how these can be adapted to help teenagers when we're just seeing these problems evolving.
0: Yeah, Um, oftentimes we ask this thinking of the you know, parents, the family members listening to this show, um, what would you say as, you know, the professional, what are some of the symptoms that one would look at to really seek help for their adolescent teenager ch- child? I mean, however, you know, we think they're sad. What You know, when you s- try to determine, is it just sadness or is it something I should really seek help for yeah. or um, the negativity where do, you, where do you tell someone? You should really have them talk to someone.
1: Well, for, for really for any condition, I look, you know, feelings of depression or anxiety um, are a part of life. They've evolved through, over the course of evolution to help us respond to depression, to a loss, anxiety to some dangerous event in our future that we want to avoid. They're adaptive. They work for us. What we're looking for is the impact on function. It's not so much symptoms. Are they sad, down, depressed, blue, feeling hopeless? I look for that, discouraged. What's the impact on their social relationships? What's the impact on their grades in their school? Oh, their grades are sliding. Does he go out and see friends anymore? You know, he, they were all getting together to watch the bears this weekend, and he turned them down. I had a, you can't, again, one of these, I can't make this up. Mm -hmm. I had a dad who called me up. He goes, we were going to go take my son. He's been feeling down lately, so I got tickets for him and eight friends to go to Great America. And the kid said no. Now, what teenager turns down Great America? Right. That's, and I think quite wisely, dad said, this really troubled me. Uh, so his sister went in his, in and his. Yeah. And it, so when, you, when it's impacting relationships, it's impacting school, and it's continued for, we'll just say two weeks or more, Seek a consult. Get just some okay. backup. Red,
0: red flags. Advice. Look yeah. for
2: those red flags. If, certainly if
1: there are thoughts of death or suicide, by yeah. all means, that's a red flag.
0: Okay. That's good to hear. I mean, to, for the audience to hear.
1: And it is worth noting, uh, probably once a year I will get a call from a parent who is concerned and they'll say, here's what we've got. So I'll meet with the parent, meet with the youngster. I got to tell you, they're actually okay. This is a transitory thing. There was some stress at school. Your daughter's going to be all right, right? And that's a reassuring thing to be able to say,
2: yeah. And there's nothing wrong with
1: that, nothing wrong with it. It's just, I mean,
2: check in, right? yeah. Better yeah. better
1: safe than sorry. Right. You right. think something's and wrong with
2: your car, you bring it in, don't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah,
1: if the car's rattling, no, it's not the car, it's your gas, you right? It's never, and it's probably and never, water never in the tank, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's probably never too young to have someone get checked out either i mean you know if there's there is an age yeah if there's a behavior like you said six months old you have a question even though well that's where you you know we all send
1: our kids to pediatricians Mm -hmm, right are
0: pediatricians knowledgeable about cbt and all of these i mean are they um is this like a widely uh written about and
1: they are quasi familiar with it but let's be clear and this is something which I think is really an exciting advance in the field. Pediatricians, for them, depression, suicide, OCD, severe anxiety, that's not their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. That's not what they're trained to do. Right. It's not what in their comfort right. zone. So what they typically do is refer them along, either to a child psychiatrist or psychologist. As they should. As they should. But more recently, what we're doing is training uh, psychologists and some social workers to uh, be placed in the primary care setting. And so that, how would you put it, it's a fast handoff. There's no six months waiting for an appointment. I'd like you to see, you know, fill in right. The blank, right down the hall. Can we see them this afternoon? See them right now if you like. That notion that there is a triage to a mental health professional in real time makes so much it's sense. It's
0: a dream come true. I mean, that yeah. would be, that's no. the best case scenario.
1: But there's lots of offices that are doing that now. It's a new sort of model, wow. and I think we'll see how this plays out. Now, there's one thing that we're doing, and I'll, that's I'll, fantastic. Great I'll to put, know. I'll put out a, 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 a what do we call this? A high, high five to one of my colleagues down at uh, UIC, Ben Van Voorhees, and he he and I have been friends and colleagues for better than 20 years, and he's working on a project. He's a pediatrician by training, and he's interested in this question of how do we put evidence-based treatments, how do we put CBT into a pediatrician's hands in real time? And so we have a project right now. It's called P2P, Path to Progress. And what we have is it's an online CBT group, so their teens are talking to other teens who have feelings of depression. And then there's a a called Catch It, which is an online um, uh, software that teaches you, it's 10 little modules, 12 modules, that will teach you CBT. And over the years that we've been working on this, it's moved from something that would be on a laptop to something that you can have on your smartphone wow. Wow. in real time. Wow. But the notion then would be that the pediatrician would say, you know, you look like you're feeling a bit down, depressed. Let me do a quick screen. And they give a screen that we use, you know, it's six items long. And you get a score on it. You know, I'm going to give you something here. I'd like you to talk to my nurse, and we're going to hook you up with this software program. And we enroll them in the P2P project. And, but the notion is that teens will have these online evidence-based resources in real time so that when they're feeling down, they can just call it up on their, is on their and phone. I mean, but what that's what idea. I think is the, that's I think there are things that people, it's not just us, but uh, across the country are thinking about to make these approaches, which seem to do some good, Available to really accessible accessible when they need it. But if you think about it also, we're blessed to be here in Chicago. We've got major hospitals and lots of really solid clinicians around. But what happens if you're in rural North Dakota there or in rural Northern California there? You know, these are going to be wonderful resources.
0: And we all learned our lesson with the pandemic. You know, you couldn't couldn't go out and see anyone. You better have some ways to connect and get help. Yeah. Right. Well, that's amazing. Well, God, you've been such a wealth of knowledge. Like I said at the beginning, I always learn something new. Well, I learned a lot of, a lot of new. And me too. You're just so amazing. It's just, uh, what we, an could, enlightenment. we could sit here all day. It's just yeah. uh, endless and so interesting. So yeah. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you so me. much yeah, for giving us you your enough. valuable time.
2: Yeah, we appreciate it so My much.
0: Pleasure. We'll have you back. Anytime. We'll you back. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs>
2: Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at mail.com. That's mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with
0: mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.